Hello and welcome to the Moffitt Tattletale Podcast. I am Jada Lee. And I am Anaya Today we have a special guest for a special episode. Our guest today is Dr. Nancy Peters, who works as the direct, director of the Philadelphia STEM ecosystem. Welcome, Dr. Peter, and thank you for being part of Moffitt Tattletale. You're welcome. Can you tell our listeners a little about the STEM ecosystem? I sure can. So I work at the Philadelphia Education Fund, um, which has been in Philadelphia and doing lots of college access and STEM programs for many, many years. And about five years ago, we were um, appointed you may want to mute your your uh, your call would rather when you're not you're not talking, but you can hear me. Okay, so um, about five years ago, we were appointed as one of at that time twenty national STEM ecosystems, and now there are ninety four national and international STEM ecosystems. An ecosystem is is just a large collection of what we call STEM stakeholders. So it's a way for teachers and government people and folks who work in colleges, nonprofits, and lots of other uh, businesses as well to connect with one another. So we've been running the STEM ecosystem for about five years. And we last year we started something called the Pennsylvania statewide STEM ecosystem. And I'll tell you a little bit more about this uh, when I go on. So why don't you go to your next question? Did you have to study anything specific in college or university for your career? That's a great question. So you've done a little bit of research on me. So you know that my bachelor's degree was in um, animal behavior. Um, so I just, I just love animals. That's what I've always liked. And so I wanted to study animals. I don't want to be a veterinarian. I knew I just wanted to work with animals in some way. Um, so I have a really good science background a natural science background, but then I got a master's in education and then I got a doctorate in education because at some point I realized that what I wanted to do with my love of animals and science was to be a teacher. So um, when I got my master's in education, I learned a lot about teaching and when I got my doctorate and had to write a dissertation, which was a little over 200 pages, um, I learned a lot about writing and doing research and doing evaluation. Um, so in all of my degrees, um, they've really helped me in the work that I do today. Do you hold multiple degrees and can you explain what, what they mean to you? Absolutely. So my undergraduate degree is animal behavior. And in fact, I, um, I created my, mo my own major. Um, so there wasn't a major in animal behavior at the University of Massachusetts, but I 
um, worked with a program and I took some courses from zoology and some courses from biology and some courses from animal science. So I created an animal behavior major, which I really still love that work. Um, and then my, my master's degree was actually in science education. And then my doctorate is just in general education. Um, so I got my doctorate um, when I was um, in my 50s at the University of Pennsylvania. And I got it because it seemed like a good thing to do. Um, I didn't need a doctorate for the work I'm doing now, but it's been super helpful. I love being called Dr. Peter. And it also helps me to work on grants and to write grant proposals and to write articles. And, you know, it's just a really, really good degree to have. How did you get your start at the STEM ecosystem and how long have you been working there? Well, so the STEM ecosystem is, is part of the McKinney Center for STEM Education. It's part of the education fund. So I've been working at the fund for five years and I've been working on the STEM ecosystem for five years. And kind of like I said at the beginning, it was a very long answer to a short question. Um, there are lots of STEM ecosystems all over the world now. There's 94 of them and they're run by an organization um, called TIES out of Ohio. And the STEM ecosystems, um, we come together a lot, we talk to each other, we've created these collections of STEM ecosystems. And so it started because we were approached about um, getting grant to start it, but then we just got really involved in it. And so we've been maintaining it. With your background in science, what attracts you to do other areas of STEM technology, engineering, and math? So I read that question. That is a great question. It's a great question. For, for 14 years, I worked at the Academy of Natural Sciences. So all I was doing was natural science, which is my love. But um, STEM, science, technology, engineering, math has become a really big deal. And more and more, all those disciplines are all mixed up together. So often when I'm teaching about um, natural science, I end up teaching about engineering or we bring in technology. So for me, it was a natural thing to um, to start to learn about them all. And also because each one of them is, is super important now for careers and um, academics. Um, my favorite thing to teach about is still natural science, but I've developed um, an interest in the others. And this is just something for you guys too. Um, you know, I don't need to know everything. So I don't know a lot about belt technology. I really don't, but I work with a lot of people that do. And so we often will collaborate on projects. So I bring what I know and those people bring what they know. Can you please tell us about the STEM equity initiative within the STEM ecosystem? Yes. And that is a great question. And so it's sometimes hard to figure out what I do. So I'm the director of the McKinney Center for STEM Education. And we run the Philadelphia STEM ecosystem. And um, almost two years ago, somebody from GlaxoSmithKline, GSK, came to us and they wanted to know more about the STEM ecosystem. And they studied us for about a year. And they talked to us at the Ed Fund and they talked to people we work with. And then they made an announcement. And the announcement was that GlaxoSmithKline was going to fund the STEM Equity Collective for 10 years with $10 million. So the STEM Equity Collective is very, very specific. And it's about um, 
getting more and more girls and people of color to access STEM careers. So it's it's a really big project and it's within the ecosystem, um, but it's it's a really amazing project. And so we're partnering with GSK and the school district and lots and lots of other partners as well. So the STEM Equity Collective is about um, increasing the number of girls and minorities in STEM careers. Um, so um, you also work with PEF, the, the Philadelphia Education Fund and the McKinney Center. What does your work there entail? That's a great question too. So at the McKinney Center, so the Philadelphia Education Fund, been around for a long year, a lot of years, does a lot of work with the Philadelphia School District, does a lot of work with high school students and college access. Um, my work at the Ed Fund, the STEM work that I do, there's four buckets, four things that I do. So the first thing that I do um, is I do a lot of curriculum development. So I write a lot of lesson plans. Um, and I work with people that write lesson plans. Yesterday, I created a quiz for third graders on carpentry. So very, very, very different kinds of things that I do. So there's curriculum development, there's professional development, which is I train teachers. I do a lot of teacher training. And I know you're gonna ask me a good question about that soon. Um, third thing I do is we run a program called Explore STEM Philly. And we um, get in touch with scientists and we train them to present to high school students and I do a lot of the training. And the fourth thing that I do is um, work with the Philadelphia STEM ecosystem, the Philadelphia STEM Equity Collective, and the Pennsylvania Statewide STEM ecosystem. So I work with lots and lots of ecosystems. So I have so many different kinds of jobs during the day. I really like it. That's the way that I like to work. You have teaching experience from elementary levels to adults. Is there a particular person or people who inspire you to become involved in education? Um, you know, when I was studying animal behavior back in the 1970s, and I didn't know what I wanted to do with it. You know, like I said, I didn't want to be a zookeeper. I didn't want to be a veterinarian. I just wanted to work with animals. So I started volunteering in the late 1970s um, for an environmental education center, a nature center. And that was the turning point for me when I realized that I wanted to combine my interest in animals, my interest in the environment with teaching. Um, I don't, right now I mostly teach adults. I know you're going to ask me a question about that too. And I'm going to elaborate that on that in just a minute. How long have you been teaching youth and adults? What has kept, kept teaching fresh for you? What has been your inspiration to keep going? Great question. You guys have really written some fantastic questions. Um, I, I, my, right now, mostly what I do is teach adults. Um, so one thing that kept me fresh, I mean, I taught students for years. I never taught in a classroom, but I taught in a lot of other um, like nature centers and museums and after school programs. Um, and then working with teachers um, has kept me excited about my work because then I feel like I can work with a teacher and I can teach them a lot of times what I know. Um, the other thing that keeps it really fresh, and I know you have another question coming up about this as well, is, is just being able to do so many different things. And so I still sometimes teach. Um, two years ago, I taught a series of preschool classes on dinosaurs, you know, 
because it came up. And um, I teach a lot of high school students, and now I feel like working with elementary school students. I would say, though, that um, what keeps it fresh is having a lot of variety and always trying new things. Have you ever felt uncomfortable teaching adults? How did you deal with it? Um, yes, I have felt uncomfortable. I'm gonna combine two questions here. The, my favorite question that I read when you sent it to me was, um, I think it's like, has a, teacher, has a teacher ever disagreed with you about teaching students? Um, so sometimes that can be really uncomfortable. Um, one thing that sometimes happens is that um, like, for instance, teachers can be kind of disruptive. Like teaching adults is, is a lot like teaching kids, but you can't tell kids, you can't tell adults to stop talking. You can't say you're gonna do poorly on your exam. You can't send them to the principal's office. So you have to find ways to um, keep adults interested and in cooperating. Um, and that's a lot of what I studied um, for my doctorate. So when I'm working with adults, um, what can be challenging for me is when they aren't disinterested, when they aren't following the rules, um, when one person talks so much in a workshop that nobody else gets a chance to talk. Um, and I've learned a lot of, um, of strategies for doing working with adults because I can't send them to the principal's office. So one thing I'll do is I'll just walk right up behind an adult while they're like doing something wrong and everybody looks at the adult and then the adult stops doing it. Or sometimes I'll just stop talking and the adult will stop doing it. Um, I'm gonna wait till you ask, answer, ask the next question to, to answer the next question, even though I said I was gonna combine them. So ask me your next question. Our next question is, do you still teach younger children? Does it matter to you what grades that you teach? I still occasionally will teach younger children when I'm asked to do it because I like it. Um, I love teaching middle school and high school, um, but I like I like all ages. Um, and I think it's great that I still have a chance to work with little littler kids, even though mostly I work with adults. How does it feel to teach other adults? Is that in some ways more challenging? It's more challenging to teach adults sometimes because um, if they don't like what you're doing, they'll tell you. And so again, I've tried a lot of strategies um, to keep adults interested and also to keep certain adults from distracting other adults. Um, sometimes on like these webinars, you know, I'm on a lot of Zoom meetings and sort of managing adults on Zoom meetings is a whole new world for me, as opposed to managing adults in real life. And you can't just mute somebody. I mean, you can, but it's pretty rude. So, um, you know, we try to do like, we'll say, hey, you know, Joe, that's a great question. Let's talk about that afterwards. Or Joe, that's a really good question. Let's see if other people have a question. Who can ask a question that hasn't said anything? So we try lots of different ways just, just to make it fair among adults and also um, to give everybody a chance and not like one person distract everyone else. Did your students ever teach you something? If so, what? Oh, my students teach me things all the time, all the time. I, I can think of so many times that I've worked with students 
I'll tell you one. I'll tell you one example. Um, I do an activity. Mr. Domeno's seen me do it a lot. Like we do um, um, twenty questions. I'll pass a bone around, and people try to understand what the bone is without just by asking yes or no questions. And so, um, one time I was doing that with a bunch of high school students, and one student was just writing the whole time. He was writing and writing and writing, and I didn't know what he was writing, and I thought he was just like not paying attention. But when it got to his turn to ask questions, he had written down everybody else's answers so that when it was his turn, he nailed it. And so what I learned from that is that different people have different ways of paying attention. Describe the best experience you have had with a student or a comrade in science. I'll tell you my best experience with a student. I'm going to tell you two. Many, many years ago, I taught a class, I taught a program at the Academy of Natural Sciences called Women in Natural Sciences. It was for ninth and tenth grade girls. And one of the girls was being a real pain. And she was mean to other girls. She actually pushed another girl down. She was just really snarky and surly, and she was very disrespectful to me. And I suspended her from the program. And I said, you can't stay in the program unless you come to my office with your mom. So she showed up with her mom and all the little kids in their family. And I had a really small office. And all the little kids were sitting in all different parts of the office, like sitting on file cabinets, sitting on the desk, you know, because there's really no place for them. And the mom said, um, I'll do anything to keep my daughter in this program. It's really important. And I said I would give her a second chance. And the next year, the girl that was so disruptive became my assistant. And she was amazing and wonderful. And she wrote me a note and said, Thank you so much for giving me a second chance. And you know what? She and I are still friends. It's been like 30 years and we still stay in touch and she's a lovely person. So that was really exciting. I would say that was the most exciting thing that, that ever happened to me with a student. When, when we did research on you, we found lots of different position, pause, put up positions that you had and currently do have. Do you still work all these jobs in one day? How do you manage your time between all of your jobs? Um, so I would say there's two parts of that question. One is I've had lots of different jobs. And so I worked at a museum and then I worked at the University of Pennsylvania and then I ran something called the Philadelphia Youth Sports Collaborative. And so all of the different things I've done have, have helped to make me like a fuller kind of a person. Um, I have very good time management skills. It comes very naturally to me. Um, I love doing multiple projects and I keep track of everything. I have an incredibly good memory. I don't know why. I say that my memory is my superpower. I remember everything. So it's easy for me. Um, you know, to to really do a lot of different things. And it makes my work so interesting.
because I'm always doing different things. Sometimes in meetings, sometimes I'm designing quizzes, sometimes I'm putting together a PowerPoint, um, sometimes I'm writing a grant proposal. Um, I really, really like it. I get everything done. I still enjoy my, um, my free time and my sleep. You have many interests. Did you ever consider another career and how did you settle on sci science and education? Um, so I worked at the Academy on Doctor of Sciences and then I worked at Fairmount Park and I was all doing science teaching. And then I did change careers. And for 15 years, I worked in after school, out of school time. I helped after school teachers. Um, and I still did a little bit of science, but I sort of switched my whole career. And it was a little scary because I thought if I change careers, like I'm not going to know as much as I did in my old career. And I'm not going to be as good as everybody else. But I was able to catch up pretty quickly. Um, and then I, while I was also working at the University of Pennsylvania with another person, I started something called the Philadelphia Youth Sports Collaborative. So it's all about, you know, programs that use sports with kids. And I didn't know that much about it, um, but I did that for 10 years. And now that program is really doing well. And then I came back to STEM. And the more that I tried different jobs, the more confidence I had that I could do more than one thing. Um, so it's been Science, I guess, was my first love, and I'm back in science, but it's been sort of a windy road to get there. Are you still involved in animal science? If so, in what ways? Um, well, you saw the cat walk across my keyboard, and I'm going to show you something else. The reason my hair is wet and the reason I asked if we could do this at one o'clock instead of 12 o'clock is that um, one morning a week, um, I ride my horse. And that's a book that I wrote um, three years ago about my horse or about horses. So I have a horse. I've been horseback riding most of my life. My horse lives about, she lives in Fairmount Park and it's less than a mile from my house. And I ride her usually one weekday morning and then on the weekends. And that keeps me very involved in nature and with animals. Um, we also have two cats, used to have a dog, have a bunch of fish, um, always seem to be surrounded by animals. And my husband, um, his background was also in environmental education. And now he's a fundraiser for nonprofits. But when we go camping or we go out in the woods, we can identify all these birds. We look at each other and say, who are you? Because we have this old, old natural science animal stuff still in our minds. In our classes, we are learning how to overcome failures and disagreements amongst our partners. Can you tell our audience how we can respond to mistakes when working in science and STEM? Um, goodness. I mean, science and STEM are all about mistakes. It's all about experiments. It's all about taking risks. Um, when the mistakes that I make 
more often are the mistakes in dealing with people. You know, I'll say something that came out wrong or I'll be critical of somebody when I didn't need to be critical um, or I'll talk about somebody, you know, when they're not there. Um, I think those are still the biggest mistakes that I make. Um, and what I try to do when I make a mistake is be honest with someone and say, I'm sorry that I did that. Um, and even if they don't accept my apology, even if they don't even respond, um, I try to do the right thing. Um, I think that working with people is probably harder than anything else that we do as adults. Um, and it takes a lot of skill and it takes a lot of experience. How do you avoid getting angry at yourself or your partners when there is a disagreement? Um, I run a lot of programs with a lot of people um, with very strong personalities. And there are two things that, that help me for that question. One of them is to pause. So I'm getting angry, take a break. You know, if somebody sends me a, a, a nasty email, don't respond right away, think about it. If I'm in a conversation with someone, somebody's getting all worked up and everything and they're making me angry, try to just take a, take a break, take a pause before you respond. Um, the other thing is um, I've learned over the years that I don't have to correct everybody, even if they're wrong. And if somebody's mean to me, I don't have to be mean to them back. And, um, you know, there there are people that I work with that are, are arrogant sometimes or just bossy or just mean. I mean, I'm sure that you guys have friends and relatives and classmates that you don't love. And I try to be a nice person in response. I'm not always good at it, but I'm getting better at it. And I think for the most part, people like that about me because I'm kind. Have, have teachers ever disagreed with you how to teach students? How did you handle it? So of all the questions you sent me, that was my favorite. Because um, I don't think anybody's ever asked me that before. So I was doing this bone activity with a bunch of teachers two years ago and we were passing it along. And when finally somebody guessed the right answer, I gave them a bag of candy. Well, the person, the teacher who didn't get the bag of candy was annoyed. And he said, you're just teaching kids to be competitive. You're making something competitive. They have to compete. There's a winner. We don't need to have winners. So what I did was I paused. I didn't get all defensive and say, well, da, 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 da. I thought about it. Um, I made sure that he knew I was listening to him. Um, I asked him to tell me more. And then I explained what I did, which was I always give out a big bag of candy that people share with everyone else. But I also don't think competition is always bad. And I told him that. And so we were able to have a conversation about it and disagree and not me get defensive and him get all angry, but also not take a super amount of time away from the class. And we said we would talk about it afterwards. And that works a lot of times too. Um, let's talk about that later. That's a really good point. So I don't wanna blow him off, 
but I don't want to get everybody involved in this conversation that's between two people. What can our listeners do to help? Wait. We're on a green question. When you see students making a mistake. When you see students making a mistake, do you correct it or let them see the effort that affects for themselves? So often I ask open-ended questions. Open-ended questions are questions that don't have one right answer. Um, do you know somebody in your neighborhood that's a, that has a STEM career? Um, what's an animal that you've seen in the park? Do you have any pets? And, and all those questions have lots of right answers. So that minimizes, that makes the chance of a wrong answer less. Um, but sometimes there are wrong answers. You know, if I'm holding up um, a dog skull and somebody says, is that a cat skull? That's wrong. But there are nice ways to say that, you know, you're close. Cats and dogs both have the same kind of teeth, you know, so rather than just shutting down that question, sort of teasing it out a little bit, rather that answer and, and getting um, the students to think about how to go from that answer to the correct answer. We have a few questions about climate change. What can our listeners do to help offset or reverse the effects of climate change? So I think the most important thing for your listeners and for you is to just keep getting a good education and learn about these things and learn about the different points of view with climate change and learn about the science behind climate change. And then at a certain point, you can start to make decisions in your life. You can choose uh, what kind of car to purchase, you know, in terms of um, pollution. You can choose what you want to recycle, um, what kind of food you want to eat, where you want to shop, all things that sometimes more directly and some less directly um, impact the environment and impact climate change. And then part of, I think, knowing about science and understanding science and understanding science issues is that when you're old enough to vote and there's a question about the environment or there's a question about climate, you'll have enough information to make a really good decision. Have you ever done anything to stop climate change yourself? Um, just in my teaching, mostly in my teaching. Um, when I was an environmental educator for many, many years, I worked in a nature center in Massachusetts. And so much of what we talked was about taking care of the environment. And so I would say indirectly, um, I have contributed to helping the environment by teaching. And then even now, many of the uh, lessons that I've been writing and the people that I've been working with have, have had to do with the environment, with solar power, with clean energy. So lots of different ways that you can make a difference. Have you ever worked with Kali's? Kali's? Have I ever worked? Climate change 
what have what have they done in their effort alongside you? So um, most of the work I've done is in education, but we work with um, a part of the school district of Philadelphia, the Green Futures Education for Sustainability, and we're developing lessons with them and we're working with teachers. One of the cool things that we're doing is that we're working with an organization called Johnson Controls, which does energy, and they're doing clean energy um, installations in three schools in Philadelphia, an elementary, middle, and a high school. And we're working with the teachers in those schools to um, develop lessons around what's going on in the installations in their schools. We will now open up to the rest of the club for follow-up questions. I would love to hear from the rest of the club and you too also. If there's anything that I said or talked about that interests you, I, I welcome you to ask me questions. Brandon? So just earlier you said that um, you would train scientists. Um, did this impacting? Did this impact you, knowing that you made a difference for the future of our Earth? You know, I it does make a difference to me. It does make a difference to me. I think that um, you know, I work in a nonprofit, and you know, my goal, I would say simply, is is to make the world a better place. And education is the way that I do that. But Brandon, you picked up on something that I didn't say a lot about when I say trained scientists. So we we identify all sorts of scientists, but they don't necessarily know how to work with kids. And so what I do is I help them understand working with teenagers and help them understand how to be better educators. And I totally feel like that makes a big difference because um, the kids or the students get to hear from real scientists. The scientists learn how to be more comfortable and, and be better teachers with the kids. And then more kids will grow up to be scientists because of that, but also, Scientists that are already working in corporations, maybe they'll feel a little bit more welcoming to young people or feel different from them. Yeah, um, um, is it Jade, Jada Lee? Yes. Um, so earlier you said you go for rides on your horse. Were you self-taught or did somebody teach you? I could talk about my horse all day. Um, I have been riding horses for almost 40 years. And this book, which is looking upside down on your um, thing, it's called 20 Horses. It's about all the horses that I read before I actually bought, rode before I bought my own horse. And I've ridden in the country, I've ridden in the city, I've ridden um, on trail rides around the world. And originally, when I was growing up in Philadelphia, I was taught how to ride. And I was taught how to ride English, which is, you know, kind of a fancy way of riding. But then I lived in New England for a long time and I rode Western, which is a different kind of riding. And then I started riding bareback, which is just riding with a pad or nothing on the horse. So over the years, at this point, I'm pretty much self-taught. Um, I'm a very um, adventuresome rider. So I still ride bareback. I ride without a saddle. I ride on the trails. Um, for the most part, I ride pretty well. Um, if I didn't ride well, I would be falling off my horse at this point. Um, but, but sometimes I'll take a class, just like everything else. And a week ago, a week and a half ago, I took a class on horseback riding um, with a bunch of other people. 
and they gave me a lot of lessons um, and it helped me. Um, mostly about sitting up straight, putting my shoulders back, not slouching, you know, and, and tucking my butt underneath me. So I'm mostly self-taught at this point, but I always use a little bit of refreshers. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. Would you say it's more comfortable riding without a saddle or with? Um, I am much more comfortable riding without a saddle because I've been doing it for so long. And when I ride without a saddle, um, I, I can be much more in touch with the horse. You know, she can feel my legs and, and little things like that, but you have to have the right horse. I mean, some horses are just either super uncomfortable because they're bony or they're wild and unpredictable and you can't stay on them. Um, my horse Cheyenne is so steady and so thoughtful that I can ride really comfortably bareback. When I ride with a saddle, which is like once every two years, I'm sore the next day. Um, Ronaldo, what's your question? Um, when you were ever riding your horse, did your horse ever lose control of itself? Yeah. When I first got her, um, she was, was nervous about leaving the barn. Um, she made friends in the barn right away and she wouldn't leave and she got really upset. And so I was being, um, really kind of um, stubborn. And I said, well, I'm gonna ride her anyway. And I'm gonna get her out there. So I took her out of the field, riding around. She took off, I couldn't control her, I fell off. And then I said, well, I'm gonna ride her anyway. So I got back on her and I rode her down onto Forbidden Drive. She heard another horse, she took off and I fell off. So I fell off twice in one day when I first got her. I haven't fallen off of her since. Um, but that taught me a lot. You asked me what my, te my students teach me. My horse teaches me stuff every day. And she taught me to respect her moods. She taught me to take it easy, to take it slowly. Um, I started just walking her, holding her and taking her away from the barn so she'd be you know, confident and wouldn't be so nervous. I started hanging out in the, 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 the pasture where she is with the other horses so I could be part of their herd. Um, and, and now, like kids this morning, I went out by myself. She was great. She was fine. She trusts me. I trust her. It's such a good lesson in just going slowly. And I, I used to write an article for the paper on horses. Um, I, wrote a, I wrote a column every other week called Horses in the Park. And one of the, the, the um, articles I wrote was about why horseback riding is like teaching. And the reason I thought horseback riding is like teaching is that you get to the point, if you're a good teacher or a good horseback rider, where everything that you're doing looks effortless. You don't have to scream at students. You don't have to yank on your horse. You have such good communication and such good control, whether you're teaching or riding a horse, that it looks so easy. Um, so that's a very long um, answer to your, your question. And yes, I've had lots and lots of other horseback riding accidents on other horses, but not on my horse. Her name is Cheyenne. So I have a question for you guys, all right? So you put together these incredibly good questions. I mean, they were really good, really good and thoughtful. And the two of you did a fantastic job of asking the questions. But I want to know, what about science or STEM interests you? And 
do you think that you ever want to have a career in STEM or a career that involves STEM? And if you don't, that's okay. There's no right answer to this. So what interests you about all this? Go ahead, um, Jada Lay. What interests me in like science is the fact that science is unpredictable. And if you're doing like an experiment, you would never really know what the results will be. So say you're making a volcanic eruption, you could, it could explode or it could just not. And um, it's just really unpredictable. And I think that's just my favorite part about it. That is so cool. That is so cool. And the question that you asked me about making mistakes and I said science is all about making mistakes. Um, it's all about taking risks. Um, and sometimes things work out really well and sometimes they don't. And in my career too, I started things that have been a total flop, you know, didn't go anywhere. And I've started other things that have been really amazing. So that same idea, I think will take you right through your career. Who else? Something that you like about STEM or science? How about Ronaldo and then um, Ania? Is that how you pronounce your name? Okay. Ronaldo. Okay, God. Ronaldo first, though. I saw his hand first. Yeah. Um, in science, that it, it could help the environment a lot. And that's really important. Um, that's always been, even though I've had all these different jobs, um, caring about the environment has sort of been a, a, a constant with me. And how about one more question? Go ahead, sweetheart. Um, probably because when you're doing science, and you don't know that much about science, you might think some things are like, you're unpredictable, like you don't know what's gonna happen next. But when you're doing science, you could find out all the answers and you'll know a lot more stuff. So I'm gonna tell you, I think that's great. Oh, um, Jadalee, did you wanna say something else? Go ahead. Yeah, so when we're in class and we're doing science, we did an experiment to see what chemicals can turn a penny a dull penny up to its natural shade of color. And we figured out that vinegar actually helps dissolve the rust on the penny. And I think that a lot of people were thinking like soap and water and like hot water, but when we tried that, it didn't really work. And nobody really predicted that vinegar would work as much. But when it did, everybody was like really shocked about the final results. And you know what? You reminded me of the last story I'm going to tell you. Um, you asked me what was like my favorite experience with a student. And I told you about um, the woman years ago who came in with her mom. Um, when I was between jobs, um, I was offered a job at Temple University as an adjunct professor. So just coming in and teaching a couple classes. And I ended up teaching a class in the Fox School of Business. I don't know anything about business. Um, but I was using somebody else's um, slides and it was about creativity and innovation. And, you know, it was really cool. And one of my friends said to me when I was looking for a job, she said, don't just ask what you want to do next, ask what you want to try next. And that just reminded me of what you were saying about experiments. So I taught this class. Um, I taught it for a year and a half. Um, it was really fun. It was really challenging because I had to learn so much to be able to teach the students. There was one student who, um, he didn't, he didn't do most of the quizzes. He missed a lot of classes and he had an opportunity to rewrite his paper, um, but he didn't. And so I averaged out all his marks 
and he got a D plus. And he saw the grade and he said, can you do something about this? He said, if I get a D plus in this, in this class, I won't graduate. Um, and I thought about it and I said, okay, I need you to, and I talked to somebody else about it. I said, I need you to answer three questions for me. Um, the first question is, um, what did you learn from this experience? Um, and the second question is, um, what will you do with this information moving forward? And I actually forget what the third question was, but I had, I made him write me, um, you know, why basically he had messed up in the class and what he learned from messing up in the class and what he could do differently moving forward. He wrote me a really great essay. He was, he was very, what we call self-reflective. He was really thoughtful. And he said, you know, I messed up, but I've learned a lot about time management. I've learned that I can't, like he was in a band and they were traveling and he said, I learned I can't do all this stuff. So I changed his grade to a C minus. He graduated. I was walking across campus like a year later and I hear somebody going, Dr. Peter, Dr. Peter, Dr. Peter. And he came up to me, he said, because of you changed my grade, I was able to graduate and then I got into graduate school and I'm here at Temple University in graduate school. And I wouldn't have been able to do that if you didn't give me a second chance. So that was really exciting for me too. And also that he remembered me and that he took the time to run up and tell me that it had worked for him. Um, not everybody gets a second chance, you know, and not everybody gives a second chance, but when you do and it works out, it's, it's just so really wonderful. Anything to add before we close out, Mr. DeMeo? DeMeno? I actually have questions if you have time. You've given us yeah. so much time, but um, can you tell, like, a few things. I can't believe we missed asking you about your book. Can you tell us what publishing was like and what that process was? Um, yeah, it was really interesting. Um, I had been telling stories to my friends about horses for years. And then one day I thought, I can write a book. In fact, what I really thought was if Keith Richards could write a book, I could write a book. Keith Richards from the uh, Rolling Stones, I said, anybody, I could write a book. So I just started writing. And each chapter was um, a part of, um, you know, like a different horse. So there's like 20 chapters and each one is about a different horse that I rode. And I just kept writing it. I kept writing it. I didn't think about publishing until I wrote it. And I had several people read it and help me with it. And so I finally had the draft of my book. And then I started talking to editors. And then I started talking to people that publish books. And somebody said, you need to take a course on writing a book. I was like, no, no, I don't wanna do that. So I decided to self-publish, which was really easy. But I hired somebody that knows how to like format books. So she, you know, she knew how to do the picture on the front. She knew how to do other words on the back. Um, she knew, how to set up all the different chapters. What was really fun is that I had pictures of horses and me from like years and years ago. Like this is 30 years ago, me standing there with a horse. Um, so I was able to put in pictures of all the horses that I um, had ridden. And then um, I self-published. And actually, um, one of the things, the thing in the back, which I wrote said, uh, Nancy Peter, blah, 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 blah. This is her first and last book, because I never want to do this again. Um, I've sold several hundred copies of it, and half of the proceeds from this, this book goes to Fairmount Park to support the stable. Um, and 
I've given away a ton of copies to my friends just about, you know, just because they like it and everything. And, and a lot of them are in the book, which is really cool. Um, do you want me to read you a little bit from it? Please. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to read you the part that I usually read. This is about Andy. So this was when I was in college. And let me see, I have a picture of Andy right here. Andy was not the prettiest horse in the world. Um, this is Andy. He was, that's when I first learned how to ride Western. And then um, this is me on Andy. And this is like 1975. All right, so here's a story about Andy. Um, um, let me see. Soon after I settled into my dorm at the University of Massachusetts, I saw a newspaper ad for a horse to ride. It was brief. Gentle quarter horse available to ride, $30 a month. Um, so I went to the went to the house. I'm gonna skip a part and I, I met the people and I had a, they had to sort of, I had to do a test to make sure that I could ride the horse. Um, Andy was Kathy's horse and Bill was her lanky and quiet ranch hand boyfriend. Andy was a plain chestnut quarter horse and chestnut is like all red all over. Um, with a brick red body and matching mane and tail. Andy was a typical cowboy quarter horse with a solid calm temperament and general common sense. He was also, he also only knew how to ride Western. Um, I had never ridden Western. So other than on our family vacation trail rides. So Bill and Kathy showed me how to adjust a Western saddle, cinch a Western girth and put on a Western bridle which goes around his face. Um, they pointed me to the fields behind their house um, and explained, told me to ride between never ever through the farmer's fields. Then they stepped back to watch me. Riding Western for the first time was a lot of fun. Andy's Western saddle was much larger than the refined English saddle I was used to. It had a large horn in the front and thick wooden stirrups. His bridle was a bit different as well. It didn't have an extra leather strap and the reins were longer. Kathy and Bill showed me how to keep the reins in one hand rather than in two and how to steer that way. Andy and I walked and then trotted out and down a path between two of the fields. Again, I was taken back by how lovely everything looked, the yellow, the red, and the orange. Um, from my city background, the panorama looked like a miniature golf course. Everything was going well until Andy suddenly stopped, dropped, and rolled um, in one of the newly planted fields. Apparently, the fine, dusty soil was irresistible. I hopped off without a problem, but could not get Andy to stop ro rolling until he was completely covered in dirt. Eventually, he righted himself. He shook himself like a wet dog and waited for his next instructions. I may not have had a lot of riding experience or had a horse roll under me, but I knew this was really bad. Uh, for one thing, it showed that I was a terrible rider with zero control over my horse. It was hard on the saddle and not so great for the horse to roll around with a chunk of leather, metal, and wood tied to his back. But it was especially bad for the freshly planted field and for the delicate relationship between the hardworking farmer and the student neighbors. I was so humiliated. I felt completely incompetent. I knew that was the end of my relationship with Andy and with Kathy and Bill. 
I didn't bother to get back in the saddle, but sheepishly led Andy back to the barn. When I got, when I, when I returned, and to my surprise, Kathy and Bill agreed to let me ride Andy that year, and we signed a contract. After I got to know her better, I asked Kathy why she let me ride her horse after I performed so miserably in my trial run. Kathy replied, right before you came over, Bill and I had a big fight. Bill watched Andy roll and said there was no way you should ride my horse. I was so mad at him that I decided to let you ride Andy just to spite him. So that was one of my very, very first riding experiences. Um, I'll tell you one other thing. I love writing, W-R-I-T-I-N-G. And when I was in college my first year, I didn't know whether I wanted to study animals or whether I wanted to be a writer. And when I finally sat down and wrote that book, I was able to be a writer and an animal person. That was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> well, this was great. And I hope I didn't bore you um, with oh, all of my different stories. Yep. Okay. Okay. So well, we are about out of time for this episode. Is there anywhere our audience can go to follow the STEM ecosystem, Philadelphia Education Fund, or any of your other work? Yep. There is um, there's a website for the Philadelphia Education Fund, and there's also a separate website for the Philadelphia STEM ecosystem. Um, I have a Facebook page. The Philadelphia Education Fund has a Facebook page. And I believe that PEF also has a Twitter account, but I don't know very much about it. Thank you for being our guest today. We appreciate it. Come back anytime. I will. Well, that, and thank you all for having me. Well, that concludes of this episode of the Myra Tattletale podcast. See you all on another planet. Be sure to follow us on social media, John Moffat Elementary. Will and, do. And visit our site at villasd.org slash Moffitt to find out when the next episode of Classic Paddle Tale goes. We are